Hello everyone and welcome to Game Dev Diary, a podcast where we discuss the career journeys of gaming veterans. I'm your host, Ahmed Can, and I'm here to help you kickstart your career in gaming or improve yourself by learning from the failures and successes of others. Hello everyone and welcome to Game Dev Diary. For this week's episode, I have a guest that uh, is very experienced in making podcasts as well as uh, in many other areas. <laughs> Sophie Wo, uh, founder of Rise and Play, helping leadership teams reach their next level of performance. Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Amit Khan. Uh, very nice to be uh, also first a guest and also we've been knowing each other so, for some years. So it's nice to see your own journey and you starting a podcast. So I'm really happy to support you in your podcaster journey. So welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And on a personal note, uh, you over the years, you've always been uh, ready to help me whenever I, I approach you with anything from get, getting advice to today being a guest for the podcast. So thank you for the support and thank you for always being there. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today about your journey in gaming so far mm -hmm. sure uh, happy right. to you know help and uh, let's get started where, wherever whatever you like to ask <laughs> so i want to start with how you started your gaming journey and you actually didn't start working at a gaming company with your professional career right off the bat so can you tell me a, a, bit, a little bit about what you were doing before gaming and how you made the transition how you changed your career from that other area to gaming mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I, sh uh, I should start with my background because my background is not uh, in games for like for many people actually who studied games for I don't know the past 20 years. Uh, so I studied business uh, in France uh, where I was born. And uh, so my expertise has been more, well, my expertise education has been in uh, sales, marketing. And so I was on the path to work uh, for product marketing role in big companies corporate, I must say, like I was uh, doing some a bit of work for Philips, uh, Nestle, uh, Disney, big companies, National Geographic. And it was great companies, um, great brands, great products, but it was too big size for me. And I didn't feel like it was the right place for me. I, I didn't know at that time because also my education is, um, I would say, quite Asian, typical culture where is get a good job get good education and good salary and so it was going against um, the expectation that I've had also from my uh, parents working for big companies and so there was a timing where um, it was difficult anyway there was too much um, demand in uh, product marketing roles in big companies and I didn't feel really like it but I was like well fine if it's uh, what I need to do out of uh, like Uh, school and at the same time there was game loft so it was more opportunistic uh, which was looking for a specific profile of producers who were coming from business schools so I know it's very elitist when I uh, now think about it and talk about it um, but back in the day it was really looking for um, what we call headquarter HQ producers with a business background to um, overseas production of games Uh, develop all around the world and that was very appealing to me as a role because I've always been interested in working in with international teams uh, different cultures having uh, myself a mixed culture and background and in games uh, and it was also having a lot of ownership on games uh, at a time where the only options was working in a console or PC and it was an industry that was I would say quite close. So if you haven't worked in games, if you are not a gamer or if you are not the typical professional in-game, which uh, by uh, uh, me seeing, being a graduate you know, woman in games, I was not a typical profile, so I could never start with console. And mobile was a new opportunity for anyone. Uh, so I started to work in games on the Java phones, you know, like the Nokias and so on. And since Gameloft is the, was at the time... Uh, the little brother of Ubisoft, we were working directly with big franchises. So I worked on Prince of Persia games, Assassin's Creed, Uno, uh, what else were the franchises from uh, Ubisoft? 
um, that we had to bring to mobile and port to all around the world. So this is at that time where I've worked with studios based in uh, India, Latin America, Vietnam, uh, who helped uh, port and deploy the games on all devices across the world. So that was super exciting to get started in games. And for the background, I've always played games, never thought of it as a career. And that's that time in 2008, uh, nine, 2008, between 2008 and nine, that I get to meet like a part of passion and a career where my business profile was matching the needs. And since then, as you know, uh, 20 uh, years later, Games have grown so big on mobile because uh, mobile capabilities also have increased a lot and allowed also the uh, entry for many, many other games on mobile. And I stayed in uh, mobile games since then. Yeah, so the in working with international companies before joining Gameloft, I assume should have been a great uh, stepping stone for you because usually, at least for now in the current market, when someone starts working on games, it's usually about working on a single game and working on that game so that they can specialize and they can learn the craft. Then they can collaborate with others and grow their um, effect, let's say. But in your case, because also it was the early stages of mobile, I, I think it was a very um, opportunistic time for you to get exposure to that many teams and that many big games that were already like with big IPs, existing com existing players and existing uh, fans all around the world, I guess. Yes, uh, totally. It was very rich for me as an experience. And this is, you know, when you um, just graduated like from school, you um, so it was from my business school getting so much responsibility quickly, which I think uh, in, in hindsight was also led us to us as producer making a lot of mistakes because we were leading three, four teams at the same time, international, not having properly a training of how do you lead even international teams. And yeah, handling quite big franchises, like I said. And the variety of games were quite uh, interesting at the time because I worked on platformers. So I was really hands-on on even designing some levels with the designers, like with some teams in China. It was super interesting on uh, Prince of Persia, uh, game. I worked also on simulation simulation games, sort of seems like on mobile, uh, dating romance games, uh, quiz games, um, farming games. I've I really touched on several uh, genres that also spoke to me. I worked also on Harry Potter franchise as well. Remember, and having the exposure on working with um, licensors was interesting, and which is was a realization to me. Uh, I'll think about it twice before working with a licensor because there's a reality of uh, managing uh, the licensor, um, the partnership, the expectation, which is an extra factor to uh, take into account in development. Well, uh, I don't know about the hurdles with working with an IP, but at least with the IDFA changes and all the user acquisition problems that uh, we are dealing with right now, IP is getting much more important throughout the kind of current situation. So maybe this can be helpful for you going forward, although like it's uh, had a sort of a bad impression in terms of the collaboration. At least that's still a valuable uh, skill and experience, I think, to be able to work with such large IPs like with uh, people from different countries all around the world. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it, uh, it is more uh, um, a heads up when you co work with IPs, that is, you need to manage the partnerships. Yeah, totally makes sense. So you mentioned that you had a, a business school education and you had a, a background that was fitting with what Gameloft was looking at the time. Was there any specific or any uh, any other thing that helped you make that transition at the time? Or do you think your background was the thing that helped you uh, get into the games industry at the time? It was the background and also having interest in games, right? So it was a very specific profile. That's why we were a certain breed at Gameloft. And we some of us stayed quite actually long-time friends and are still in the industry at the Rovios and Square Enix and other studio even at Voodoo. Um, I was with some of uh, ex-Gameloft. So yeah, we came with a business background, understanding what it takes to uh, do project management, basically. So it was 
for uh, for the creator of Gameloft, like bringing really professional skills into the traditional role of producer with project management skills. That's why they were looking specifically for uh, people coming from business uh, background. And then uh, the other part, I don't know if it was part of the transition, um, but they were only uh, hiring people from the top five schools uh, in France. So we, again, back to the elitism. <laughs> I'm not uh, fully supporting that, but I appreciate that I was part of it and uh, feel fortunate that I could also uh, be part of that time uh, of the mobile growth where Gameloft was uh, really big in deploying, again, big games, big franchises uh, on all uh, mobile devices around the world uh, through portals, you know, career portals. So, uh, yeah, I think that was mainly the choice for me. And it was, again, opportunistic, opportunistic because... I didn't think of it too far as a career. I was like, let's see. And then five years later, I was like, well, I'm still in and it's becoming bigger. So actually during my career at Gameloft, uh, from um, producer, uh, I grew to the roles of um, free-to-play uh, manager. So I was part of, a, and now I see the track in my career. I've always been the one who's been assigned to explore new businesses. So I was the one in charge leading um, exploration on free-to-play games on Facebook uh, at Gameloft. And because I was among the few who had the knowledge about free-to-play games when everyone else was focused still on mobile premium distribution, then I was the one leading uh, free-to-play uh, as a business model to mobile when we started to make free-to-play mobile games at Gameloft. And then I took over uh, overseeing the portfolio of all the games that were live and the live ops. So that was my career. So that's what I meant that I just started from a point and then as opportunity showed up, I took the challenge and then grew with how the market and business uh, grew. And we can, of course, touch on that uh, later and looking at my career steps, but I've actually been doing this consistently <laughs> as the market is growing to some new territories uh, every three to five years. Yeah. And uh, before moving on with the next steps, because I want to touch upon your journey after Game Loves, when you think about the current market conditions and people that are trying to enter the game games industry today, do you have any suggestions or recommendations to people for getting into the industry? And what, what would you say that would be helpful for a person that is trying to do that uh, today in 2024? Yeah, so I have... Uh... The, the good thing is I have met um, a lot of new people coming to games, also uh, knowing many experienced people like with more than 10, 20 years. And experience is one thing, but it's not the main thing, I believe. So uh, I'll have a more an, uh, optimistic answer to people trying to get into the industry where I, I'll talk about the skills that I think are evergreen and very handy if you want to be in a fast-changing uh, industry, which is like games, <laughs> to be honest. like uh, When I look at what has happened the past 15 years, I feel like I have lived five lives. Um, so one skill is really the ability uh, to learn quickly. So the skill to learn uh, things, new things fast. And because we have... Uh, technologies that are emerging to help us be more effective, like AI, tools, change of engine, new platforms, sometimes new market, new audience. So just like being a sponge to learn quickly, like even you trying to do podcasts, picking it up, picking up uh, the new tools and resources available. I think that's a key uh, skill to have. Um, second is... Um, being curious and open-minded. That's something I've learned over time. Like if you start to be uh, too comfortable and settle, like I know the truth and I know what's right. I know what works. And this is my core belief and I'm holding hard on, on that truth. Uh, you will be irrelevant at some point. So as long as you're curious and you're curious to learn and put the effort into, again, exploring, learning, listening, um, to what's happening, that's a very handy skill, I'd say, to uh, understand the big picture, but also seek the opportunities that are presented to you. And the first skill is networking, which uh, I, 
I see this really as a barrier in the gaming industry because when I, I see myself, how I end up in events and I end up also meeting quite often the same people and I don't meet so often new people, I wonder why the new people who are in the industry have a, are having a hard time to get to those events or knowing the people I know. And it's about networking skills. So what I mean by that is when you show up in an event or when you connect with someone, it's not enough to just show up at the event and uh, have a chit chat with people, be strategic about how to network. And that's why now I'm doing workshop events with Rise and Play about what is the art of networking because you have to be deliberate and, um, and strategic. Uh, who do you want to talk to? What is a good outcome for, for you coming to at an event? What is a good ROI? Uh, is it about the business contact you get? And what are you talking about? What is the follow-up? So that is what will make you be aware of opportunities when they are for new jobs. Uh, somebody uh, thinks of you, uh, you know, when there's a new opportunity or to be invited or in the circle of events. And it's, um, an effort that requires uh, consistency and the, uh, like to be consistent, to repeat. And that's why you see as well now these days what we call the LinkedIn game uh, to a point that sometimes is a bit ridiculous, I must say, but it's it's marketing, right? So, um, but what I mean is be consistent in appearance, uh, what you stand for and where uh, you show yourself whether it's on a, so a social media platform or it's at event and the people you talk to. So uh, those are, I would say, the advice I would give that no matter what the context is, is trying to, yeah, to summarize, establish the network, um, learn new things over time, be curious, and don't wait for opportunities to get started. So if you wait, you have a contact or the money to get started with the games that you like to make, find a way to make the games you can make now. Or if you want to start a podcast, <laughs> start your podcast now. If you want to start to write uh, right now, you know, so don't wait for a condition to get started because that's also a way you create your opportunities. And there yeah. are so many tools out there these days, resources available, uh, like, you know, the Navic, the Deconstructor Fun, uh yeah, mobile gamer, all those resources, even rise and play that you can use and build on top of that to build your content, your game, or whatever you want to uh, build to get into games. Yeah, yeah, basically being proactive and like not standing still, but building towards the uh, move that you want to make and building towards the end goal that you want to have. I, I think this is a consistent feedback that I get from many people as well. So. It's important to always be moving, always be learning and always trying to live outside your comfort zone so that you can grow and then you can continue going outside, outside your comfort zone continuously. I think that makes uh, total sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. So after working at Game Loss with those uh, big IPs and international teams, you continue to work on uh, other uh, big gaming companies like Vuga, Rovio and Voodoo. So, and with increasing uh, responsibilities with in each company, as you mentioned as well. Uh, when you think about when you think about your journey so far, uh, what what do you think helped you m move between those companies and also grow your responsibility through time? Mm -hmm. So I'll start maybe with on a high level, like what were the common um, patterns and signal, right? So when I have. A, um, there, there was at uh, those different points um, a, a growth ceiling for me personally, not at the company because the opportunities always exist, but a growth ceiling for me about as I went more in the journey of uh, my current role at each company, I found new problems uh, that were bigger than what I was doing and with bigger impact and the more complex that got me really curious and that I, I felt really committed to trying to solve. So that's more, um, so the growth has driven me, but also the desire of having a bigger impact uh, of what I was doing. And I'll give here a concrete example from my transition from Gameloft to Wooga. I, um, Gameloft was my first and main company where I've learned how to work in teams. And it was 
um, a culture at that time. Maybe it has changed since then, and I, I hope so. Uh, very hierarchical. So you had a creative director, a VP, and all those uh, roles with titles that were making the calls, and we were executing the decision. And um, in my own personal values and what I have uh, advocated, even with Rise and Play, I didn't feel right about um, giving directions to teams that where I was not uh, in the wits with them. So uh, many of those teams based in different countries, like, wh what do I know? I didn't really develop a game on site with a team to say, you must do this and that and that way. So I was trying to be collaborative in my way, but with the limits of my own environment and system at Gameloft. And um, also, I didn't believe that it would deliver the best outcome for, because I, it's just relaying so much on me being right or my boss being right. And like, what if both of us are, are like all the people who are making decisions are wrong and we are limiting the potential of a team. So once I understood that through my journey at Gameloft, I was four or five years in working by that time after 15, 20 projects, um, game launched. I got curious about Wooga, which was at that time very uh, progressive and innovative in their way of working because they were taking inspiration from tech startup and Google, I'd say, with lean teams, smaller teams with um, more responsibility and ownership and basically uh, flipping kind of a system around where usually at a company you would try to grow your career and title and think you move a career ladder and you become more important or you, you grow your status by becoming director and VP and so on. And at Wuga, is, you are the most powerful person by being... Uh, uh, in the team, uh, on the product uh, leadership level, uh, you make uh, the decision with the team on the roadmap. You are responsible for uh, the PNL, and I was like, "Wow!" So basically, each game is it's a, a mini company, uh, a business unit, and you are the mini CEO of uh, that unit, right, of the game. So when I uh, I got the opportunity to become the product lead on Diamond Dash, big game, big success at the time on Facebook and growing on mobile. I was super excited. Uh, so that's what was driving, driving my first change. I want to learn how to work in other uh, organizations stru structure and culture where the power is more distributed to teams. And there was no way I could learn that at Gameloft because of a system. Uh, and which I have learned a lot at Wuga at the time. And I was also then um, product lead on Jelly Splash. And I learned also to collaborate and work by, lead, by influence. So moving from leading by authority to leading by influence, and it requires different skills because you have you have to convince people that uh, you have a reasoning uh, behind the decision and not just because you happen to be the boss and you make the calls, right? So I, I learned a lot there. And uh, what led us to my transition to Rovio later was um, I, I started to get more curious about Finland as a gaming uh, hub because uh, the Supercell was uh, emerging and there was um, the saying that, you know, a developer in a Finnish team is worth 10 developers somewhere else. And I was like, really, is that true? And so the promise was with Finnish uh, teams, you work with small teams, but the outcome is 10x more than the same team, same size somewhere else in Europe. And I wanted to experience that myself. Um, and that's why I joined Brovio. And the other interesting part for me was also how is it to work with a big uh, IP? What is the leverage? What can we make out of it? And so I, I was leading Angry Birds Pop. That was a bubble shooter with Angry Birds. So uh, also new tech from Rovio to make their own internal game. So I joined at a point, a momentum where Rovio was building their internal resources to uh, uh, release their own game because Traditionally, Rovio was a publisher and doing core or external development. So that has been a pattern as well. I always join new initiative. And then what led me to join Vodou was, what is that company that has absorbed 6 billion downloads, hyper-casual games? And at the time, I was like, hyper-casual games? It's not even games, it's nonsense. Those games that have no narrative, no art, uh, how is this possible? So I understood there's something I 
don't know. I want to learn. And so that's why Voodoo was a very uh, attractive and interesting company. And at that time, they were looking to build the new casual studio internally. So again, new opportunity to build a new business for a company. And then I joined. And my last stop was uh, to building the studio in Berlin, uh, just for the stop. Um, new casual studio. And the learning as well there was... Um, you know, it's very, it was entrepreneurial journey for each of those roles inside a company. Uh, and the learning as well is for each company, when they try to explore new business, you are part of a failure of, um, of um, experiments, you know, where sometimes it's stretched too far. And for the case of Voodoo, building full uh, internal casual studio is, was a stretch too far. And what happened to be the right uh, focus for Vodou was more going to hybrid casual and the games we see today like Mob Control or Collect the More, which are on the foundation at the foundational level hyper casual uh, games and appeal but expanded to uh, the tale of more casual games with some uh, IAP revenues and also longer uh, long term retention but they are not casual uh, by uh from 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 the concept phase, so that was also the learning here as well for us as a studio. We were, um, you know, like the, the crash test to see how far we could go, and so that built the learning for the company. But it was also uh, not going forward for us as a studio. We built we built a, a game we were really proud of, Plantopia, and I, I know that it's been noticed in the merch space at the time where merch mentioned where was also growing. It was it would have been a good game. Uh, case for the reviews and other um, mid-sized casual companies was not the right game at all for Voodoo uh, with the errors expected. So that's again like to tell the whole stories is really important in the context of what you're building, what good looks like and what success is in your own context uh, always when you assess what is a hit. Um, and my last uh, stop before I, I move full-time to Rise and Play was also building we're not building, uh, transitioning the first uh, internal mobile studio at PlayStation, which was also a great journey, a lot of learnings, and also understanding the limits as well. Always when you go to a new business, it's always, you know, you try to aim, shoot somewhere, and then you calibrate over time and correct. And uh, then you, as a leader, uh, helping transitioning through the change, you basically accelerate the process of the learning to make the decision for the company, uh, what is the next iteration, basically. So what was, was were the different uh, transitions, and each time was a new business uh, inside the new company, and also um, in line with uh, the evolution of the market. So... For example, Hypercasual became big uh, or had more attention in 2018. So that's where I joined. And then uh, you see more consolidation also in 2019, 2020. And I was part also of uh, M&A, consolidation, absorption of a mobile company in a bigger company and uh, what it is to integrate a company post-merger integration, which is a whole learning by itself. And I believe it will be skills required for quite many companies that are being uh, acquired these days, which is quite common. Yeah, when I like listen to your journey from start to finish, one common theme that I can definitely see is that curiosity, learning new things always like being always being on the search of learning new businesses, new skills, new uh, practices, and always being after like getting that new skill that is going to grow you further. And not just professionally, from what I understand, personally as well. So I think that's a really, uh, I think that's a very, very uh, valuable skill. Like learning new skills is in and of itself is a very uh, important, uh, valuable skill and being curious about them constantly and not um, losing interest or not losing your energy over the years, I think is uh, very respectable. And I think that's quite a common theme for your uh, journey so far. <laughs> Thanks for observing. I can relate to that now that you say it. And also it's the skills I was telling for people trying to get in the industry yeah. because... Uh, you can be an expert of something of premium games, and then you see sometimes the uh, premium is like some. It comes back now, but you know it was like now it was all about free to play, and I don't know web free next. Um, so yeah, 
learning over time. Yeah. And speaking of learning and trying new stuff, while you were growing your career, you were on the side working on a fashion startup for a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. can you tell a little bit about that startup and how how it was like working on a complete new business while working on some of the biggest gaming companies? Yeah, I have to go back to 2000 when I built the company, 2014. So I was joining... It was a new year for me, so I was uh, I moved to Berlin from uh, Paris for Wuga, the role as product lead uh, on Diamond Dash. Uh, so new city, new country, uh, new company. And when I think about it, it's a bit weird. And I still could find after a year where I was um, restructuring the team, organizing the team, and the team was very uh, proficient on, on the game. I, I, I didn't feel that I was contributing that much at that time because the roadmap was set on. We were making our success with all our updates. And so the team has really was leading the, the game at that point. I I found myself a bit bored, unchallenged. And I said, like, I'm going to cr- create my own challenges outside of work because it's unfair to expect the company to give me all I want. You know, it's, it's also sometimes uh, what we have as... Um, unrealistic expectation as employees. So uh, since Berlin has been very active on a startup scene, I found, I was discovering the city and I saw so many local shops that had no marketing presence, uh, no visibility. And I was finding them by accident. It's like, this is a, a wasted opportunity. So it's like my business brain like was triggered. Like I, I, f- I feel passionate of solving that problem. And tr- so I created a platform for uh, the fashion local shops in Berlin uh, to create uh, a map where they, a bit like Yelp, where they would be all listed, but they have to list themselves and they put the photos on their uh, page. And then people could find by hashtag or uh, going, um, you know, traveling in the city with a map open. And uh, think of it a bit like the, Uh, Tinder with a radius and that's more like it's the Tinder for shops right you walk in the city and you're like I don't want to go to H&M and big brands I want to go to the local designer shops but I don't know what they are and so the idea was more to show you the items the photos of the items that are around you by hashtag or location and discover in that way the local shops so um, we put it together with um, two engineers Uh, that I was working with at Wuga, uh, built the company, made the prototype, and it was working well. And then the other part was the B2B component that I had to go around and talk to a lot of shops to uh, convince them to be on the platform. So there was the B2C aspect and the B2B, like Airbnb problem, you know. And I realized the problem, the main challenge would be for me, the sales part to convince more shops uh, to have a marketing presence and so on and adopt the platform. So we built that uh, on part part time, six months aside uh, of uh, the full time job, and uh, why I did it, um, and what I did it, um, I've always wanted to try to build a new business. I knew it, um, and I wanted to start small. And I thought maybe I invest in uh, learning like MBA at a school. And I thought the best school is actually doing it yourself. So I was really not thinking of it too far. Let's build the product. Uh, let's incorporate the company. And I put 5,000 in the company. It was my investment in my own education. So back to what I said, invest in yourself and uh, do make things. That's, that's the best learning you can have and things you can show. So I learned a lot. It was my entrepreneurial school. And uh, after a year, year and a half doing this part-time, I needed to have a hard conversation with myself that my heart was not into it. I was interested in building the product and the solution, but I it was painful for me to go all over the shops uh, after my work day and convince. And also with the co-founders, we didn't sit down to uh, ask ourselves, what is the ambition of the company we're building? Uh, what's the vision? How do we want to work? Like all the things I'm talking about in Rise and Play, we didn't do that. We just went on building the product and we could see quite difficult conversation along the way. So there were, one of them was, um, is still today a good friend. We were just not aligned on the ambition and the purpose of the company. So when I had a certain direction, we went to conflict and also the team of uh, co-founders, we were three women 
we dissolved. And that was the learning is, well, I will never work again with co-founders, but that was not the learning. Uh, now that I think of it, was we didn't have a real conversation why we built the company. And even myself, I did not have it. I just wanted to learn and, uh, you know, uh, build a product and not have responsibility of any company. So I wasn't ready. So that was a very, I think, for 5,000, uh, that, that is for me a big, big learning that I couldn't have got uh, attending an MBA program or something. Well, trying to build a marketplace before it was cool. I, I'm sure it was uh, like full of new learnings for you. And I assume you touched upon it a, a little, but uh, do you draw any learnings from that phase while you work on Rise and Play right now with leadership teams trying to uh, solve their problems currently with your uh, current um, job and projects? Yeah, so from that time, I, I, I got scarred uh, from my first startup because I, I thought I'm, I, I will never build a, a business again. <laughs> it, was, it was very uh, painful emotionally. Uh, it's also a lot of identity. Um, uh, trauma is a big word, but pain because um, you define yourself with the company you built and I couldn't detach it at all. And that was unhealthy, actually. Uh, so then, you know, your company is a failure and then you are a failure, you know. So I needed to heal and recover from that the years after. And that actually built slowly Rise and Play, where I started small. Like, you know, I'm starting Rise and Play slowly on the side with a podcast. And the same drive was there. Build a network, trying to help a community of makers, creators, builders, and building the platform that uh, make them more efficient or visible. So in a way, you can see the analogy of at the time I wanted to give visibility to uh, local designers in Berlin. Here I'm giving visibility to game companies and founders in the space and the practices and uh, creating a, share, a sharing platform. And so the learning that I brought, take, took with me with Rise and Play is first having clarity on why you, you're starting your business. And I was the main uh, point of failure on my first startup. I didn't have that conversation. I just wanted to build a company again for out of ego. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> period. I wanted to build my own product. And when I had the real responsibility, I was like, oh, oh my God, no, I don't want to do that, actually. I don't want to be responsible. Um, so I always challenge founders to have the real conversation with himself and the other co-founders, what is the real why they build a company? And it's not like, oh, we want to build a game with impact. What is What does it mean for you? Do you want to be famous? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be uh, remembered? Do you want to make an impact? Do you want to work on something that you love? You know, there are so many different motivations and none of them are wrong, but they need to be transparent to your other co-founders because when you are in the situation that you will have to uh, raise money, then comes the conversation, what is the ambition level of a company? Are we trying to build a $1 billion company or are we trying to build a lifestyle business where we enjoy ourselves and we decide how fast we grow and we have majority of ownership? Very different uh, setup. And that defines actually who you take money uh, from and in which condition. So this is where I see the hurdles. And uh, this is, there is a lack of awareness about it until you make your own mistake. But it's so costly because how much does it cost a company that has been founded uh, on the seed stage? It's $2 million. And then what is the other cost? Is the cost of the people who have been uh, part of it, who are scarred and uh, they don't want to join the next startup after uh, join two or three startups with the same story. I've, I'm talking to also to those people. and. It's uh, it's sad and it's damaging because we could avoid some of those by, again, having the hard conversation from the beginning. I'm not saying you can avoid failure, which are more business execution and so on. Yes, but at least that part of having a line one in the beginning. So that's what I've been focusing on with Rise and Play, working with some of the companies. And most of the questions that we address together is, the company vision, strategy, and product market fit. Why is it that that part of the market, that segment, that type of games you're pursuing, that is a good uh, founder product market fit? We don't talk enough about that. You know, we it's very good founder fit with your product market fit question. 
Yeah, uh, the immediate like uh, pause or like imp- impulse to get onto some like new business, build your build your own company, be an entrepreneur, and live that you know hustling life always seems quite attractive and sexy from the outside. But like first, focused on the core values and the main reason that you are doing that job or building that business. Yeah, I think that uh, that is the most important thing before doing anything with any job or any company that you want to build. And speaking yes. of speaking of scars and failures and uh, past mistakes, when you look back at your journey so far, if you had the chance to change one thing in your uh, journey and in your career, what would that uh, one thing be? Mm. So recently I've interviewed um, at on a... Um, on the podcast, you will be live next week, um, Jenny Shu, and she's the uh, CEO and uh, founder of Talofa Games. And she built a company in her late uh, 20s at the time when I built actually also my fashion startup. And when I saw her, that, that's actually, I came with a realization. I wish I were her when I was her age. Um, and what that means, I, we, we believe in the... Um, we believe in the potential what we can do when we have seen it. And that's why the power of representation is so important. I grew up in an environment uh, that was not entrepreneurial and especially with a lot of uh, entrepreneurial business and so on. So I grew up with a limitation and belief that I would be an employee most of my life and um, that I'm not capable of building a company. So... I wish that actually I didn't have that voice 10 years ago and I would have just thought I can actually, I can, but I can only do things that I believe in first of all. And for that you believe in, you need to see other people who are like you uh, or that you can relate to that are capable of doing it. And then you will realize if that person who I consider equal to can do it, I can do it too. I should be able to do it, right? But I just didn't see that around me to be able to have that, uh, you know, a courage to just go. So I wish I had more courage and uh, belief in myself that I could have started earlier. Uh, that's what I wished. And when I saw Jenny, it's like, wow, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the mindset I wish I had 10 years ago. But, you know, also in a way, it's never too late to start. But you have to be uh, ready with yourself. That's really important. Yeah, and times change. Like when we talk about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, the overall like uh, soul of the time zeitgeist is very different than what we are living or what we are experiencing right now. So like it's it really makes sense that through time, your uh, your perspective, the environment that you lived in and other people's perspective that is also affecting your mindset changed. And now you have a much uh, confident stance, let's say, about building something new, starting some, something new. And I think the point about representation is so important. It's really important to show everyone that they don't have to belong to a certain group or certain, I don't know, uh, people or of a certain gender, ethnicity, job or experience. It's always important to give people the chance to show their potential or speak up or start new things, try new things. So I think that's a really uh, valuable, uh, again, learning that I think we can uh, extract from that. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And now, based on your past experience and learnings and those uh, things that you've tried uh, so far, you started Rise and Play a couple of years ago, if I remember correctly, first as a podcast and a master play series. And then you uh, left Savage Games last summer, one year after the acquisition, and started focusing on your consultancy business. So can you tell a little bit about both the podcast and uh, masterclass side of the business business, and also the recent uh, consulting uh, site that you started working on? Yes. So you have um, Rise and Play. I started it actually two years and a half ago, almost three years actually, when I saw... Like I always start something when I see a gap. So it's like, it's the same product mindset, you know, when you see a gap and I saw a gap in a conversation about leadership. I, because in other organization, I've been 
if I could pin really the main problems we could see in the team, it was in the big bag of leadership uh, reasons, right? So not having the right person in the right place or clarity of roles. And so when I realized that, I thought I, ne I, need, I need to create content. I need to create a platform to see who sees the same things, first of all, and how can we make a bigger conversation when at that time there was a lot of uh, media and resources like the, the construction of Navig to cover market insights, which is very important as well, but it's one side of the business. So when I started this, I started with myself and my own learnings, putting all together, and it was a great journaling exercise. That's why I understand as well as you doing the podcast, it's it's great to write down what you've learned or talk about it. And that's why I created the masterclass, just to, as for myself first, to... to uh, You know, when what you can teach is something that you have uh, incorporated for yourself. So it's a great exercise for yourself. If there's something you can teach and, and share with uh, another, is where you have really internalized your knowledge and you master what you're doing, right? So this is that was also the, the value of that exercise. And then um, as people were really using the masterclass content on how to build a studio from scratch, because I was... How do you build a studio when I was building my studio at Vodou? And it's like, there's no playbook. Uh, I, I, I need to create the resources for myself and I, I put it out there. So that's the first masterclass, how to hire and then how to grow a studio to have uh, what I call an anti-fragile team because how do you build effectiveness over time, a compound effect or multiplier effect with a team where the efficiency is moving away from you as a leader to uh, the people, like with a multiplier effect. So that's the second masterclass I built. And people were asking, can you build more of that? Can you do more of that? It's like, well, the thing is, it's capped by my own knowledge. I, I shared what I've learned over the past 10 years. Uh, but how I can scale this is by bringing the knowledge of other people. And that's how the podcast came in the natural transition uh, to keep having leadership conversation and learning, but through others. And then the podcast started to build really as a big network. And through all the conversation, I started to see patterns, emerging patterns, once again, gaps of common problems that people would tell me in private or in the podcast. Uh, leadership challenges, co-founder team, um, being feeling lonely. Uh, quite uh, many stories of founders who are solo founders are feeling quite lonely in their role and not being able to have a super network around them to uh, just have sparring conversation in a safe environment and where it's not going to be public to make sense of their own thoughts. And so when I saw that gap, I realized with all my energy, passion and skills that I have gathered around um, leadership, teams, building teams, organization, and also in a way, in a soft way, mentoring, coaching, some of the network of rise and play through the conversation, what if... I go full-time and try it. Again, same like before. <laughs> it's not like with a master plan, like, okay, this is going to be a success and I'll do this for the next 30 years, but I will try at least. And so I started to put myself out there with Rise and Play full-time just by, again, talking about it. And now how I help is advisory basis. So I help on product leadership and strategy, especially for young or new um, founders that are exploring a new market or a new audience. So again, I, this is, I think, has become my specialty. Like, how do we cover, how do we strategize about it and reduce the number of assumptions and wrong assumptions? And the other part is coaching, which is helping founders to see what they can't see. So unlock the full potential of themselves. Are they limiting themselves? And that means they limit their team and they limit their company outcomes. Um, or also the team capabilities. And the coaching has been very powerful because um, I have some episodes around coaching. If you want to read, um, listen to it further for the listeners, the, we are the limiters of our own self. And it's, it's impossible to look at ourselves and analyze ourselves. It's just impossible. And for the ones who've been to therapy, you know that as well. It's, so you need a mirror. And you need an objective mirror. And that's what coaching offers. And it requires some skills of empathy, listening, which I've gathered over the years that I feel so very confident to help and support uh, some of the partners I have had so far. So um, 
opening here as well as, as the Sage. Right now, I'm working actually with um, small businesses, startups, founders. They are my main crowd. And also, especially many women came to me because back to representation, they resonate with the content I put on Rise and Play and relate to my journey. And they want to also uh, through that trust basis grow uh, and get to their next level. And it's not only women, it's any leaders who have resonated with the content of Rise and Play, which uh, has been amazing because then it's easier to start from that point where we uh, you know, believe in the same principles and then we can just focus on actions and solution uh, through the coaching or advisory. Yeah. First of all, uh, stepping again outside of your comfort zone and starting a new <laughs> business after all those, like all, all, all at the end of like in this part, uh, point of your journey is again, is a very courageous and uh, learning uh, aimed, learning based move uh, as far as I can understand. And about the coaching side of the business, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's not only about solving problems, but also detecting problems. And I actually, you need that coaching, even if things are uh, going well. And actually, if things are going really well, to keep them in that uh, level or to see if there is any hidden problem that is covered by the things going well, right? To understand how coaching actually works and uh, what types of things uh, you work with, with, with the leadership teams uh, on that matter. Yes, uh, and thanks for pointing it out because coaching is not about... Uh, usually people think like when I have a problem, I need to fix it. Uh, the main uh, focus of coaching is learning and growing. So if you are dedicated to growth, then it's an accelerator for you to grow uh, because it starts with awareness. And to build awareness, either you hit a wall and it's painful and this is how you build awareness. But it, it can take some time before you build awareness or you accelerate the process to get awareness to your own blind spots. That's what it is about. So it's also a discovery process to uh, discover the questions that you should ask yourself, but you don't know yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm I'm an avid uh, fan and listener of your podcast so far. So I can say that about the podcast part of the business, I recommend everyone to, if you don't know, like if you haven't already, just go and listen to the Rise and Play podcast. Every Every episode is... Uh, much like this podcast, focused on a new guest and their journey from a different perspective. And I always find new learnings from each and every episode. And I'm sure the coaching uh, part of the business is also focused on those like personal journeys and how people can grow themselves, both professionally and personally. Yes, exactly. And thanks for the uh, uh, quick promotion. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, uh, Sophie, again, thank you so much for uh, being a part of my new journey again and being here for me as well. Yes. <laughs> and um, thank you to everyone list, uh, for listening to the podcast uh, and see you in the next episode. Bye bye, Sophie. Thank, thank you, Ahmed Khan, for the opportunity. And I wish you a success and great growth and luck with your new podcast. Thank you so much. See you everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Game Dev Diary. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe to it or share it with your friends. If you want to read my notes from this episode or the previous ones, you can also subscribe to the newsletter through the link in the show notes. See you in the next episode.